Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 15, and we're uh, working our way through the 18th chapter, evidently, and uh, uh, let's, and just I want to read six verses, 15 through to 20, uh, so let's hear God's word to us this morning, let's, let's hear it. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, as we noticed last week, uh, chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel is taken up almost entirely with, uh, with Jesus' words, except in a, in a couple of places. Now, Jesus is uh, here in Galilee, and the last mention of uh, a place where he was is in 1724, when they came to Capernaum, Jesus and his, his disciples, and so when we come to chapter 18, we can take it that, uh, that Jesus is still in uh, the region of Galilee and he is uh, uh, teaching his disciples. And what Matthew is doing is gathering together uh, some of the teachings of, of Jesus. And it, it actually marks the, the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Uh, when you come to chapter 19, verse 1, uh, we find that uh, you know, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Uh, this is the point where Jesus is turning his face to the south to go to Judea and eventually to go to Jerusalem to, as he expects to be killed by the chief priests and uh, the Pharisees. As he has already warned his disciples. And, uh, and so this is a, a collection of, of Jesus' teaching. Uh, just to mark the end of his his Galilean ministry, it's something like a sermon, uh, but covering a number of topics. And these six verses uh, is interesting because we we look for uh, Jesus helps us to look forward to the day when it's not just a, a small collection of disciples, but to the day when there is a church. The, an ecclesia, that's the Greek word for it, uh, an assembly, a, a, a broader body of the people of God. And actually, this mention of church in verse 17, uh, lists if, uh, you should, where matters should be brought to the church and told to the church, that's only the second time that uh, Jesus has mentioned the word church. Uh, you may remember that he mentioned church in, uh, in that uh, great promise in Matthew sixteen eighteen, I will build my church and the gates of, of Hades will not prevail against it. I will build my church. Um, 
And what's interesting about that word is, is Matthew uses it only twice and no other gospel writer uses the word church. Um, only in the book of Acts and then in the letters where uh, the significance of Christ is explained in more detail does the word church become a commonplace. Um, so the fact that Jesus mentions the church here uh, makes it significant. Um, Jesus is looking, I think, beyond the present time, Jesus' present time, uh, and even beyond his own time on earth to the day when the church will gather uh, in assemblies and meet together. And what he's doing here is he's laying down a, a couple of markers for what constitutes a healthy church life. And in this passage, these are um, how the church should handle discipline uh, when it comes to sin in the church. What should the church do when its members or one or more of its members sin? Um, how should it handle it? And this is about how Christ rules over the church and, uh, by setting up a system of discipline in the church. And then in the last couple of verses, how the church should think about prayer, um, particularly about prayer when Christians get together uh, they, and they should get together to pray. Uh, and this is about then Christ being in the midst of the church. So discipline is about Christ over the church, uh, exercising authority. Uh, but prayer, the, 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 uh, the passage about the verses about prayer are about Christ being in the church and the, in the midst of the church. And it's a glorious uh, thing, isn't it? Uh, so these are the two things that we're going to cover uh, today. Though our time was spent, uh, most of our time was spent on the first of those, the idea of discipline. I've got three points to, to make about those. And then one last final point on the question of prayer. Um, so first of all, I want to uh, think generally about the need for discipline in the church, in the modern church today. Um, uh, and I think, uh, for, so the need for discipline in the church. And I think this idea of discipline in the church generally I get the impression, is considered something of a, a nasty word in Christian circles. Um, we have a, a tendency, perhaps, in the modern evangelical church, uh, only to see discipline in terms of punishment and ro of wrongdoing. And, and therefore, perhaps, because we're so, and rightly, focused on grace, that we kind of push it under the carpet a little bit. Uh, I've seen many occasions where, in, in my life, where uh, discipline has been called for in the church, not necessarily in our church, but in other churches I've been involved in, where discipline has been called for and yet nothing has been done about it. Um, and what we need to do here is see the larger context for, for what God is seeking to do in our lives um, as we give... Uh, as we as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what is God seeking to do uh, as he draws us and, and unites us with Jesus Christ? What is the goal that God has for the Christian lives? And so, and the thing, what he's seeking to do is that through Christ, through Christ's spirit, and the, the work of renovation begins in, in a people who are once uh, dead in sin and trespasses, and utterly powerless in the face of sin. So sin is uh, essentially the, the dominating principle of our lives before 
we became Christians, we just did, we followed our hearts, didn't we? We did what we liked. Uh, that's that's the definition of uh, of sin being in charge, isn't it? We just do what we feel like, and our sin is, our hearts are corrupted and broken, and so we follow our hearts, and that's what people are like if they're not Christians. Um, and uh, but as Christians, we are being increasingly, therefore, conformed to Christ likeness. And as we, as we look into the face of Jesus Christ, as we find him in the pages of Holy Scripture, and as the Holy Spirit is at work in us, we are transformed from one degree of glory uh, to another. Now this transformation engages whole human beings, not just parts of us, not just the superficial aspects of us, but our whole beings. So uh, our minds are transformed in how we think and how we uh, look at the world how we assess things, uh, it changes and transforms our, our affections, the things that we love and the things that we hate, um, that's uh, the affections of our hearts. And then th- finally, it, uh, the, the work, this renovative work uh, uh, redirects our wills. Uh, so, so the mind, the, the, the affections and the wills, the will, the will is directed more towards the things that God requires of us. Uh, this is the, the great renovative work, and it's a work in progress. We're all works in progress all the time. Uh, and because of that, it's, uh, the, the Christian life is described, for example, in, in Hebrews 13, as training, as discipline. Uh, and training and discipline are interchangeable words. And, uh, and that discipline involves both positive exhortation from God in his word and also warning and correction uh, for sins and waywardness and iniquities and and transgressions and so on. Um, And so how do these uh, how do these things come to us? How does this training come to us? How does the word of God come to us? Well this training and discipline comes to us through Christ's prophetic, priestly, and kingly rule, through the visible church that he has established. And it seems to me that uh, this idea that the church is here uh, to serve as a help for discipline uh, for the disciple in avoiding sin is something that we have a tendency to lose sight of. The church is there to help us in our discipline, in our discipleship as uh, as Christians. And, and because we lose sight of it, perhaps we're, we have a tendency, therefore, to think of the church in more therapeutic terms. Uh, we might think of it, the church as a, you know, the reason to come to church is because it's good for my personal sense of well-being and comfort and so on. But we lose sight of the place of the church as somewhere where we begin to develop the athletic skill of following Jesus Christ. And the church is a place where that athletic skill uh, must be developed. And if you're going to have that athletic skill, and that's the image that is used, then that requires discipline and training. And the exercise of it by the church is is something that was uh, 
at various times in church history has been lost. Uh, at the Reformation, it was rediscovered. Um, in fact, it was, descri- it was listed as one of the, the true marks of uh, the Christian church. The true mar- what, what are the true marks of a, uh, the marks of a true local Christian church? Number one, faithful preaching of the word of God. Uh, accurate, faithful uh, uh, fidelity to, to the God's word. Uh, right administration of the sacraments. Uh, so that's Lord's Supper, baptism. Uh, we do it right and we, we hopefully do it right. And then the third thing is the right exercise of discipline. Uh, where, uh, and discipline exercised by the church is, uh, is, for, uh, is essential for the unity and the harmony and the obedience of the church of God. So discipline in the church is vital. Um, and I think we can understand that, uh, that a, per- a commitment to personal holiness is necessary. But of course, sins are never just private affairs, are they? Um, the, the, uh, usually, if not always, involve someone else in some way or other. And so the question then is, how as a church are we to deal with sins between Christians? And that brings us to our our passage today, and that's so. Uh, so the first point has been uh, the necessity of discipline in the church. I've tried to set it in a broader context, but now, secondly, I want to think how do, how do you deal with sins in the church? And this is what Jesus now lays out for us uh, in fifteen to eighteen, um, uh, fifteen seventeen, and uh, and Jesus lays out for us a number of steps that the church needs to take, and it's important to note. For us to note that that it's Jesus who does this. Um, uh, discipline is not just a matter of uh, people or perhaps the elders taking an interest in other people's sins. It's actually that Jesus takes an interest in the fact that people sin. And he wants to, uh, to help people be free of their sin. Uh, not just from the, the power of sin, but the presence of sin in their lives Um, and because Jesus takes an interest in the holiness of our lives so should every Christian so should every uh, church leader so the thing we should notice about this process that Jesus lays out for us is that uh, and and it's at the end of verse 15 he says uh, you know if he listens to you you have gained your brother that tells us the important you know what what the reason is for a process of discipline is because you want to win people back to Christ. You want to create harmony and unity within the church body uh, based on truth and holiness. And so if, if you point out sin and help people with their sin, then you gain a brother in a sense. Uh, there is no fallout. Uh, so the goal of dealing with sin in believers is to bring about repentance and reconciliation in the church, harmony, unity, and obedience. And because that's the goal, it has to be done carefully, and it has to be done painstakingly. It involves the hard work of listening to people, of paying attention to people's body language, um, of uh, seeking to engage warm-heartedly in the process. This is not a cold mechanical uh, arrangement that Jesus is laying out for the church. It has to be warm-hearted. 
so supposing somebody sins against you and be assured in church life somebody will sin against you what should you do about it so that's what jesus is dealing with and there are four steps outlined here so let me just quickly run through them first of all you need to bring it up with the person uh, who has you think has sinned against you um now to do that you need to be sure that there really is a sin um it's not enough actually to to feel aggrieved about something uh, and to have strong feelings about something um just because you feel bad about something doesn't necessarily mean that you've been sinned against uh, um, it's a very common thing today isn't it that when people feel aggrieved about something then they feel that they have been wronged but it may not necessarily be the case I had someone once who came to me uh, who believed someone else in the church was treating them badly. But when I I tried to probe a bit deeper and try and figure out what the sin was that was being alleged, um, there just didn't seem to be a sin. Um, It was just a feeling the person had. And uh, as I said, it's quite a common thing today. Um, You need to be able to identify an actual sin but once you're clear about that Jesus then wants you to take the initiative if you've been wronged if you have been sinned against Jesus wants you to take the initiative by going to the person that you think sinned against you and going back to that previous example I mentioned um, that person had come to me with a perceived uh, uh, sense of having been wronged and expected me as as the minister then to go and and take it up with the other person on their behalf and sort it out. But I had to tell the aggrieved person that the first step, even if you can identify what the sin is, the first step really needs to be from you, to go to the person, go to your brother, and, uh, and, and sort it out, and just have a discussion about it. So when you, when you go, therefore, go tell him his fault. That's what Jesus says here. Uh, the idea here is, is to expose the sin, to bring it to the surface, to explain how you think the person sinned. And, and again, this is not about primarily how you feel in the first instance. Rather, your job is to focus on the sin itself and help the person see their sin. And as you're doing that, of course, the goal is not to win an argument, but the goal is to win a brother or a sister. Back to you, that's always the case, isn't it? To win a brother or a sister. Now, having done all that, there are three possible outcomes, I think, that can happen. Uh, the first outcome is that actually there is no sin. Uh, having had the conversation with the person, you realise, oh, it's a big misunderstanding. Um, and then, and therefore, one would think that reconciliation ought to be pretty easy and straightforward. But but the second response is, there is indeed a sin, and the hope is, therefore, that the the sinner confesses it and repents of it, um, and forgiveness is given by you, and there's reconciliation again. So that's the second outcome. Sin is recognized, and uh, forgiveness is effected between two people. But the third outcome is the most difficult one, 
which is that you're not mistaken. There is indeed a sin, uh, but the uh, at least you think there still is a sin, but the offender doesn't repent, doesn't see it the way you see it. That's when you need to go to the next step. And step two is found in verse 16, uh, where you take two or three witnesses. Uh, and this raises the stakes somewhat because it's now involving other people. Uh, so this it's not just a personal gripe then, it's, it's actually a serious matter. Um, and now the thing about this is um, that, that there may be a little bit of ambiguity here um, about what these witnesses are witnesses of. Uh, commentators fall on different sides of this. Um, are they witnesses of the original sin? Or are they there to witness the charge being made to the offender, the alleged offender, uh, so that they are, you know, everything is done in an orderly fashion? Personally, I think either is included here. Um, if the sin is committed in public, then there may have been uh, others who saw it and heard it. And so two, the two or three others um, corroborate the first person's uh, eyewitness testimony. And uh, and that's certainly the, uh, the right approach. But if, if there aren't, if it isn't a public sin, then uh, at least two or three witnesses can observe uh, how the dispute is being handled between the two persons. And perhaps the, the witnesses to how it's being handled can, be, uh, can help the two parties work it out. Um, the, the idea is that the two, two or three witnesses can observe that there's nothing inappropriate being done as the charge is being made, that uh, it's being done in a rational and uh, temperate fashion and so on. And uh, so you try and work it out in front of others. If there's no resolution, even at that stage, and you still believe that you've been sinned against, then you go to step three. And step three is verse 17, to bring the matter to the church, to tell it to the church. Now, here's a big question. What, what does it mean to tell it to the church? And Christians have disagreed uh, down the ages about how this should be interpreted. Should it be before the whole congregation? Um, that's the position of uh, many Congregationalist and independent churches. Uh, and it involves some sort of investigation and trial in front of the whole church, the whole membership. Um, however, some have argued that it should be limited uh, to those in office. Um, and that's the position, so, and that's the position generally taken by Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Um, and, and the reason for that, let me just explain the reason for that. Um, the reason is because Jesus' principles here are actually drawn from uh, the rules and laws uh, regarding the use of witnesses in Deuteronomy 19, two or three witnesses. Um, and in that passage in Deuteronomy 19, it's, the cases are brought not to the whole assembly, but to judges and priests who consider the case. So not the whole body of people, but to uh, an appointed 
uh, set of office bearers to consider the case. And this is how it's been applied in Presbyterian church, uh, churches. When it says, tell it to the church, it's to bring the matter before the church's appointed overseers. Now, I think it's right to say that um, the way that we do things in, in Presbyterian churches, they are open meetings. Uh, we had a, a case of discipline in, in one of our churches in the denomination, uh, and uh, it was brought before the presbytery. Uh, but it's an open meeting, and anybody could come. And I think that's uh, a principle that is appropriate. So in one sense, it is brought before the whole church, but uh, the case is, is, is decided by the appointed office bearers. And so this is how it's been applied in Presbyterian and Reformed churches. And so to tell it to the church means to bring the matter before the church's appointed overseers, and in that sense, the whole church is doing its work. Um, and so once again, having done all that, um, and it has been established that in this before the church, uh, a sin has been committed, what if there's no repentance? What if the offender doesn't repent? Well, this brings us to our last step. The unrepentant sinner is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, this person is to be treated as one who is outside of the fellowship of God's people. Or to put it another way, the unrepentant sinner is to be considered no longer part of the fellowship. Now, it may be troubling to us to some of us, perhaps, that a church might do that to someone. Um, but a moment's thought about the goal of God for his people and what he is training them for and preparing them for um, should bring clarity. It becomes clear that someone who does not repent of sin cannot be part of the kingdom of God. After all, that is the go uh, Jesus' gospel call. Repent and believe and enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that what Jesus was preaching way back at the beginning of his ministry? Repent and believe and enter the kingdom of God. So that's how the church should deal with it. Which brings us to our third main point. How does God view uh, discipline exercised by the church? That's a big question, isn't it? It's a good question. How does God see this? So we've done our business and we've done what Jesus says. How does God see the, work, the process of church discipline? Because it would be easy for us to assume that there's no necessary connection between what the church does on earth and the way that God sees things. Um, for example, one can imagine that someone's sinning against someone else in the church and that sin is established and uh, they refuse to repent of it and therefore they have to leave the church. So that person can still harbor this idea in their mind that these nasty Christians have rejected me, but God doesn't. God is okay with me. Well, not so fast. Uh, look at what Jesus says in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we've seen Jesus say a similar thing in Matthew 16. Um, and it was directed to Peter at the time, but now it's directed to uh, the plurality of disciples. And the point is this. When the process is done rightly, 
and uh, in accordance with Jesus' words and his principles, uh, then we can have confidence that when someone is disciplined and has made a binding determination of the of sin and and judgment has been passed, then we can be sure that God has approved of it, that it has been approved in heaven. And the unrepentant sinner, therefore, has no grounds whatsoever to believe that God accepts them, even if the church has not. However, in all of this, we need to remember that in this whole process, even the point of excommunication of sending somebody out, the point of it all, of treating somebody as an outsider like that, is to encourage repentance. And I'll just give you a biblical example of that, uh, of where it happened. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a terrible sin being carried out by a man who was in the church, a, a Christian, a professing Christian, who was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul says to the church, Deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, be ca- cast him out. Put him out. But when he comes to his second letter, 2 Corinthians, it seems that this man has repented. And Paul says to the church, So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he will be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. 2 Corinthians 2.7 it's like the man has realized his sin and he's come back. And he's full of sorrow. And Paul says, welcome him back in. Forgive him his sin. Comfort him. Uh, receive him. So that's what God thinks about it. Uh, so let's not be too hasty about dismissing church discipline as though it somehow is detached from what God wants. But our final point today is to do with with prayer. And uh so everything we've said so far is about Christ uh, exercising authority over the church uh, through elders and appointed office bearers. But now we see Christ in the midst of his church. And I think the final two verses, uh, in these two verses, Jesus is actually introducing a new topic, um, a new subject. I don't think it's, it's necessarily connected with what he's been talking about with discipline. Uh, it's often considered to be an extension of his teaching about church discipline. So the two or three that are mentioned here, uh, who come together in my, and ask for anything in my name, is referring to the involvement of the church in dealing with sin. However, the more I've thought about this, uh, the more I think Jesus is talking about all the activities of, of the church. Um, wherever you have two or three assembling together, And I think it's actually talking about prayer because it's about people getting together to ask something of their Heavenly Father in verse 19. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Of course, those activities include the process of discipline because such a process which is of, of great seriousness and gravity shouldn't be done without pleading with God for wisdom about how to proceed The church, in carrying out the process, should be doing so prayerfully. The the process is never mechanical and divorced from the need of the continuing grace of God. But it is speaking, I think, of 
all the activities of the church, which are to further the goals of Christ that Christ has for the church. Uh, so for prayer meetings themselves, for services of worship, for attempts at outreach, for mercy ministries, whatever the church is involved in, in seeking to uh, pro- uh, promote the kingdom of God, they all need to be saturated in prayer and pleading at the throne of grace for all that we need to carry out all that he has commanded, uh, called, and, called us and commanded us to do. And here's the great promise. As we are doing that, as we are pleading with God, Jesus Christ is there in the midst of them. And it's interesting to note, just in passing, just what a staggering statement that is. There's Jesus standing there in front of his disciples in, in, his, uh, in his human body. And yet he is saying that whenever there shall be a group, a small group, however small, a group of Christians getting together to pray, there am I with them. Christ is present in all of these things. It speaks of Jesus' divinity because it expresses something of his omnipresence. And it's a staggering thing. What a privilege it is for brothers and sisters to get together, to meet in a room together, to bow our heads before God and to know that in the midst of us, Christ is present. Christ is there. Jesus is there. It's something uh, amazing to, to, to ponder. But it also tells us something really vital for the church and, and for every church member to know. The importance of assembling together to pray. The importance of assembling together to pray. You know, if there's one area of the evangelical church life that seems seemed to be in trouble before the pandemic. It was that Christians saw it as an optional extra to come to church or to come to the prayer meeting. And thinking that private prayer is enough. And I have no doubt that that tendency has got worse through the pandemic as it has encouraged Christians to increasingly privatise their Christian lives. As Christians succumb to fear and complacency about meeting together. But here we have this amazing promise, especially given to those who are willing to meet with other Christians to pray. There am I among them. There am I among them. I wonder this morning, is there anyone listening to this, watching this service, who is willing to forego the promise of the presence of Christ with them and to say to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if I pray at home instead of meeting with other Christians to pray. Are you really going to say to Jesus, who promises to be present when you do, I think I'll pass. Really? This is the beauty of Jesus' church, of Jesus' ecclesia, 
of Jesus' assembly. He's here in the midst of them as they physically meet and pray together. Joining, and he is joining with the intercessions of his people. What a wonderful promise. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for the orderly way in which the church is to be organized and run, all for the sake of the glory of God and for the holiness of the people who bear his name. Father, we pray you'd help us to be careful with our sin, to always seek reconciliation with brothers and sisters, to be men and women of prayer, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.